Hello, Saubona, how's it, Molo, Jumbo, and welcome to the Every Nation podcast. We hope this message will inspire you and draw you closer to Christ. Enjoy. Well, good morning. Am I good? Am I on? Good morning. Uh, that couple that was here, you guys were so amazing. You did well. I'm going to use that whenever I don't know what to say. I'm just going to just give a round of applause. <laughs> yeah. That was great. That was great. Uh, the only reason I'm glad I'm not from this church was that word fertility. I've, I've got three kids and I was telling them yesterday, I am done. I am done. I, I like my kids, but the only reason I have kids is because I like my wife too much. That is probably the only reason I have kids, but um, uh, it's been a privilege for me. been married for 15 years in December, actually, 15 years, two kids. Um, Marsh and I have got three kids, 12, 9, 3, and, um, and that's it. Uh, so you're up next. Um, uh, just briefly, it really is a privilege to be here. I, um, I have followed Every Nation Durban for years, uh, the little bit that I could. And what inspires me about this house is your ability to follow the Spirit, uh, no matter how much it costs you, no matter how uncomfortable it is. There is something about being here that whether you know God or not, you sense Him. The hearts are honest. Um, the hearts are not trying to pretend before God to be something that they're not. The hearts in this house are honest. And uh, it's such a privilege just to be in this room. Uh, great privilege to preach, but even a better privilege just to be in your, in your space. Uh, and then I really believe you have the Mr. and Mrs. Miyagi of church as your senior pastors. Now, some of you that flew over your head because you only know the latest Karate Kid. But those of you who know the original, oh yeah. Pastor Trish, Pastor Wayne um, are never loud, but they're always effective. They carry the scars, but they're always joyful and they always endure. It truly is a privilege uh, just to be with you. And uh, I, I already spent a little bit of time with them last night. I already received way more than I thought I would in this trip. So um, just to be with the rest of you is great. Today, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Um, we are going to be looking at the story of Mephibosheth. Now, if you've never heard the story of Mephibosheth, I believe you're in for a treat today. But those of you who have heard the story of Mephibosheth before, I am hoping for you and for me, that today you will be reminded of just how brilliant God is. Because God is brilliant. His thoughts and his ways are so higher than our thoughts and our ways that if we had to be honest, every time we seem to even scratch the surface of his brilliance, we are first frustrated before we are blessed. Because we can't understand why an all-powerful God will do things differently from us. But the longer we would live in him, his brilliance will take over us. He's so brilliant. Today, you're gonna see in the story 
how God is going to, in a moment of brilliance, heal one man's shame that he has carried for 20 years. 20 years of shame is going to vanish in one moment of brilliance. If I had to be honest with you, I don't know why God takes so long. I don't even like the fact that he can be so good, so loving, so powerful, and yet take 20 years. But here's what I've come to realize. God is never anxious in how he heals us. Because he is not trying to fix you. He's trying to make all things beautiful in his time. You see, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be in a church as a pastor and you come with your stuff. And I am so concerned that my advice would work. And if it doesn't, I feel anxious. I know what it's like to be a parent and a husband and know that my wife has just lost a child and I'm trying my level best to comfort her, but everything I'm doing is not working. And I feel more anxious because her feeling good makes me feel good. God is not like that. He is never anxious in how he heals you because he's not trying to fix you. He is so unintimidated by your mess. His intention with you is to help you become all things beautiful. He's not in a rush. He's not trying to fix, trying to make all things beautiful. In this story, God is not going to fix a single thing, but he's going to heal everything. Second Samuel chapter 9, we're going to read the whole chapter. Read as follows. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Joseph's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. I'm convinced that's a closer name, but move on. <laughs> da Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still the son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Michal, the son of Emil at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Micah, the son of Emil at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father and you shall eat 
at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? <laughs> then, then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring him, uh, shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of his sons. Like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Three things I want to speak to you about today as it pertains to this scripture. Um, three ways to recognize the kingdom. Number one, the kingdom prefers kindness over fairness. Number two, the kingdom prefers responsibility over power. And lastly, the kingdom refers, prefers adoption over wealth. In order to uh, understand the story, we kind of have to go back a little bit. Um, David is king at this point. He's a great king at that. But he wasn't always king. In fact, before him, there was a king called Saul. Saul started really well, but he ended quite badly. In fact, in the middle of Saul's reign, Saul tried to kill David because David was favored by God and he had fame with all the men and women of Israel. They longed to see David as their king. The issue was that David was anointed king before he was actually appointed king. It should always serve as a side note to all of us that just because God anoints you, it doesn't mean it's time yet. God can anoint you now, but you might need to wait 20 years so that your character can reach your anointing. Amen. That God really anoints David, but now King Saul realizes how anointed David is, how cold David is, and therefore King Saul chases David down to kill him. But even in the midst of all of that, the Bible tells us David ends up being best friends, covenant buddies with King Saul's son, Jonathan. Crazy. It, it, it serves again as a beautiful reminder in our nation of the idea that somehow we can only be uh, best friends with people who are like us. Try this for this nation. Becoming best friends with your oppressor's son. But anyway, let's move on. He becomes best friends with Jonathan and he loves him. Jonathan loves him too. And at, at a moment of relationship, Jonathan looks at him and he says, David, I know 
that I'm supposed to be next in line to be king. This is in 1 Samuel. But he says, but I, I know that God has anointed you to be king. By the way, you need friends like that. Friends who are not intimidated by the call of God in your life. That are actually willing to stand by the call that God has given you, even if it costs them something. Your pastors are like that. They don't care about stuff like that. As long as God has called you, they will back you. They, they don't mind whether, you're number, whether they're number two or number three. They just want to be in the game. they like that. And so in this moment... Jonathan looks at David and he says, but remember me. When you become king and everything is going well and you have all the power, all the wealth, all the prestige, remember my family. So sure enough, sometime later, King Saul and Jonathan go to war against their enemies. And when they get to war, the enemies kill King, king Saul. And so if they kill King Saul, who's next in line to be king? Jonathan. But now they end up killing Jonathan on the other side of the field as well. Now Jonathan is dead. There is no king apparent at the moment because Jonathan and Saul are dead. And so rightfully so, uh, the word gets home to Saul's house. And basically, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who's a few years old, is being taken care of by the nurse, taken care of by the maid. And the maid hears that they are coming to kill them. And so she grabs a hold of Mephibosheth and she runs, but she drops him. And he falls in such a way that both of his feet are laid. Side note, this is what culture will always do to you. It will always try to take you away from harm's way, but drop you until you're paralyzed. There is no culture. I don't care what culture it is, whether it be modern or ancient, whether it be your Zulu or Kosa culture, that can hold you unto eternity. Amen. Every culture will drop you eventually. In a world that tries to tell you that your greatest identity is how you see yourself in the mirror, the skin color, the Bible says you're not looking deep enough. Because whoever you are must be in line with whatever God thought about you before he made you. You are more than what you see in the mirror. You are more than what the modern culture says you are. You are so much more. Look deeper. Search for truth that is way beyond what you and I can think or imagine. She drops him. Poor kid is now lame. He moves from being rich to being poor. He's taken to a place called Lodabar, which directly translated means a postulous area, a barren land. He had wealth, now he's got nothing. He had legs, now he's lame. He's completely dependent. He's completely poor. He's in a barren place and he's carrying the shame of how his grandfather ended his reign. He's carrying with him shame. And he lives in Lodabar, the Bible tells us, for over 20 years, looking behind his back, waiting for somebody to knock at the door and say, we're here for you, Mephibosheth. It's time we execute you. He's been living like that for 20 years. 
And in this moment, the Bible tells us David, right here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, now is finally king. We always think of David as his highest moment being him uh, conquering Goliath, but that's not it. I would argue this was probably David's highest moment. Because the chapter before this, David is conquering kings and kingdoms. He is in momentum. Everything is going right. But he pauses and he remembers to be faithful to his friend. Don't let your success make you unfaithful. Don't make your fruitfulness make you entitled. Remember to be faithful. He remembers his friend and so he fulfills the promise. And he calls for a member of the house of Saul. Are you guys still okay? I'm giving you too much context, but I'm going to land this thing. I feel like I'm at home, so I hope you don't mind. Here, he calls for him. Now think about this. If a new king calls for the household of an old king, what do you think they're going to do? They're supposed to kill them. Because you don't want the threat of the old family to come into your life. Can I give you a quick side note? This is how you are supposed to treat sin in your life. You're supposed to annihilate it completely. Uh, sin is never sitting in your life. It's always crouching. It's always intending to pounce on you when you least expect it. There is no sin that sits. In fact, the sin you think sits is the sin you think you have under control. And any sin you think you have under control is the one that's crouching to come and get you when you're least aware. That's how you ought to handle sin. You, you should find the children of the old regime and kill them. Anyway, uh, don't do this to normal human beings. Just do it to sin. Uh, your life is too precious to destroy it with sin. We are not playing church. We stopped doing this years ago. We are trying to help you become more like Christ. Because true life is in Christ-likeness. That's a whole nother sermon. I'll have to come back for that one. And so here they are. David calls out for Saul's family. Ziba comes to him and he says, listen, there is somebody of the house of Saul, but listen, David, he's lame. What's he saying? He's saying, David, you want one of the children of the house of Saul, but he's no threat to you, David. He's, he's not going to kill you. He can't do anything. He's powerless. And David says, bring him anyway. And when he comes... This lame man, Mephibosheth, comes and he, the Bible tells us, he lays prostrate. You have to understand, he's lame. To lie prostrate, literally to lie on your face. And he lies prostrate because he knows what he deserves is death. But what he gets is life. 
He knows that what he deserves is rejection, but what he gets is acceptance. What he deserves is hatred, but what he gets is kindness. I'm worried about my generation. Because I don't think we know how to lie prostrate anymore. We are so hell-bent on making God account for the bad things of the world that we don't know that we account to Him. We are so hell-bent on the offenses we have about Christianity that we actually don't know how to pay homage anymore. We are more entitled in our worship than we are surrendered. We actually think that God owes us stuff. And so to know that we deserve death and actually know what it feels like to get mercy is something that we struggle to get. We have built our life in such a way that we don't need mercy anymore. That's what worries me about my generation. They, they're smart. they articulate. They are brave. But they're entitled. They don't know how to receive mercy. So here's what he does. Uh, the kingdom actually prefers kindness over fairness. Because right here in this scripture, the, the, the high point of the scripture is not the end. Normally when you read the Bible, you think that the high point of any chapter is right near the end, but not in this one. The high point in 2 Samuel chapter 9 is verse 7. It is the fulcrum. It is the, 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 the epicenter of the whole chapter. And here's how it starts off the first part. Verse 7 says the following. And David said, do not fear. He's speaking to Mephibosheth right now. He says, do not fear, where am I, here we go, there we go, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Okay, so here's how incredible this is. David knows that Mephibosheth deserves death but instead he gives him kindness. And, and the kind of kindness he gives him is so extravagant that the Bible can't find any words to use except for this Hebrew word called chesed. That's the word kindness. It is a compounded word. We directly translated mercy, but in its original context, to, to give someone chesed needs a few things to happen. Number one, it must be a covenantal relationship with somebody, whether it's with your spouse or with a friend, like a, a covenant, something that has bound you to someone. Do you understand? A marriage contract is not what the Bible had in mind when it thought of covenant. What it had in mind was blood. Amen. Covenant is when ink turns to blood. It's that kind of commitment to somebody that your blood is tied into the game. And so chesed is this covenantal faithfulness that, that makes you give generously to somebody to the point of radical, sacrificial giving. And so the Bible doesn't know how to put this together except to say, this is chesed, this is mercy. That you get not only what you don't deserve, you get 
something that you completely do not deserve. Mercy. A great story that is so helpful in understanding this is actually in Matthew chapter 20. You don't have to go there yet. But this is a parable, one of my favorite ones, of a, a owner. He owns a vineyard. And what this owner does, he wakes up in the morning and decides, you know, let me go to the beach. I'm sorry, there was no beach at the time. <laughs> Had to make it contextual to your world. He wakes up and he decides, all right, I, I need to go to the beach, but uh, 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 Juice Boys is still happening in the other side. I need to figure out what I'm going to do. And so as he walks out at about eight in the morning, he finds a man who's got no job and he says, what's up? And the guy says, no, I don't have a job. He said, that's fine. Go into my vineyard and I will pay you a denarii. And the guy says, dope, that's amazing. And he goes into the vineyard and he starts working. Two, three hours later, he bumps into somebody else and he looks at them. He's like, what's going on? Why are you doing nothing? He said, I don't have a job. He said, that's fine. Go into my vineyard and I will give you a denarii. And the guy said, great, he goes into the vineyard, he does his thing. Three hours later, he finds somebody else. What's up? No, I don't have a job. That's fine, you can go into the vineyard and work. Yeah. He does this all the way until at the last hour of the workday. And he finds this random individual who's got no job, and he calls him to go to the vineyard to go work. And now it's time to pay them the money. And here's what he does. He pays the money starting from those who came last to those who came first. Why? Because he wants those who came first to see the mercy. Listen to me today. Listen to me today. He wants those who came first to watch how merciful God is. But unfortunately, the time he gets to, 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 to those who came in first, here's what the Bible tells us in Matthew 20. Here's how they responded. I think it's up there. Matthew 20, verse 10. Now, when those, when those hired first came, and they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarii. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarii? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be the first and the first lost. What's he saying? Um, here's a good news, by the way, for all of us. All of us in this room, pastors included, came in on the last hour. All of us. There is only one individual who came in at the crack of dawn, and that was Jesus. And he worked tirelessly. He all the heat, all the pain, all, all the, the, the realities of work were upon him. And on judgment day, he will not jeer at us receiving mercy. He will cheer. He will be filled with so much joy when we get what we don't deserve. Because of the work he did for us. 
There is no Every Nation Durban apart from the work he did. Because you and I just came in on the last hour. No matter how much work we've put into this, we only worked for an hour. And the hour is still not yet finished. And the reality is, he is so at joy at the mercy that the Father gives. Maybe you and I are called to the same. In a world that prizes justice, we have so forgotten how to be merciful. We've forgotten. I beg you. I beg you. When the world screams justice at you, listen to it, but also remember you're a Christian. You were given what you don't deserve. Give mercy. I don't know whether I should say this in this house. I got in trouble in my home when I said this, um, but let's try. <laughs> this is why I genuinely struggle with the idea of a culture telling me that because I'm black, I must only buy black. Because I'm a Christian. Now, here's where, what you're not hearing me saying. You're not hearing me say that justice is not important. You're not hearing me say that I must turn a blind eye to the historic realities of this nation. But what you are hearing me say is that I'm also called to give mercy to those who don't deserve it. Because he did it to me. Hello online. Number two. So we good? Think about it. Do you want God to treat you fairly? Do you want him to treat you as you deserve? So here's, here's how brilliant God is. He built a mechanism. He built a mechanism in history whereby he would treat you through kindness. And the mechanism was that as David made a promise to Jonathan to bless Mephibosheth, so the father has made a promise to the son to bless you. Because of the son, he is the mechanism that God has built into the system so that you would receive what you don't deserve. Amen. Point number two, responsibility over power. Uh, here's what it says in the second part of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 7. I'm a crier, by the way, so I, I apologize. Um, verse 7. David said, And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Okay, okay think about that. Uh, Saul was a king. How much land do you think Saul had? Okay, now here's what he's saying. Here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you all the land that King Saul had. It's now going to be yours. Wow. Um, when people have shame, we tend to think all they need is our acceptance, which is partially true. But what we're going to learn in the scripture is that it's not enough to just accept people when they feel shame. You have to give them land. Here it is. 
you have to give them land. They must have something. Maybe let me put it differently. How many of you remember the story of Israelites in Egypt yeah. and the Exodus? You remember that one? Crazy story. Think about this. For 400 years, the Israelites are in oppression in Egypt. So 400 years must mean that most of the people who were in Egypt, the Israelites who were in Egypt, lived long enough to not only be oppressed themselves, but to see their parents oppressed and to watch their children oppressed, maybe even their grandkids. And there's nothing quite as shameful as feeling hopeless and powerless to help those you love. For 400 years, they are stuck in Egypt and they are oppressed year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation. The question you and I then must have is how in his brilliance is God going to heal a whole nation? So here's what he does. God heals the whole nation by doing three things. The first thing is that he, he frees them. He removes them from the oppression. And he annihilates their enemies on the, at the sea. But he frees them. They're free. Um, this is one of the things I dislike about the hyper-liberal movement. It thinks freedom is the end. It's not the end. Uh, the hyper-liberal movement says, let's just all be free. Let everybody be free. Be free to be whatever you want to be, to do whatever you want to do. No. It is not the end. It is just the beginning. Then here's what he says. He doesn't just free them. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them law. Now, your freedom is going to be submitted freedom. I'm going to give you 10 words, that's what it was called, 10 words that actually allow you to be a different kind of people than anybody else on the earth. So when people look at you, they might go, oh my word, whose God is that? Right? 10 words. And then what does he do? He frees them. And by the way, this is why I dislike the hyper-conservative movement, because it thinks everything starts with rules. They won't let you in until you've cleaned your act up. No, it doesn't work like that. He frees them, he gives them rules, and watch what he does, he gives them land. He gives them land, so that they can express their freedom under the rule of God on a piece of land. That's what he does. He give, this is exactly what happened in Genesis. They are free to eat of all the trees in the garden except for one. But then he calls them to till the ground. Why? You're free, but live in submitted freedom and express it on this land. Why? Because God deals with your shame by giving you responsibility. It's not enough for him just to accept you. He gives you a mission that is so above anything that your life can live for. And he, and he empowers you with the responsibility to actually live meaningfully. Paul puts it like this. He said, it's for freedom that we have been set free. So, right, we're free. We, we are literally free. And I, I sometimes wonder if freedom is the ability to do whatever we want or freedom is the ability to obey. Because for as long as you are disobedient, you're not free. 
Smile, Seth, smile. He, Paul says, it's for freedom that you've been set free. And then he says, uh, three times, he said, but now live a life worthy of the gospel. Live a life worthy of the calling. Live a life worthy of the Lord. You're free. But live a life that reflects where you got your freedom from. Live a life that reflects that you belong to someone. Live a life that reflects that you're called, that you don't have to be in ministry. You can be in ministering as an accountant. You can be wherever you are. Live a life that is reflective that your freedom was bought by a price for you. Live a life. And express this freedom and submission in the kingdom. Acts. Acts puts it this way. The, the, the disciples are freaking out a little bit because they are under the understanding that the Messiah coming means that they are now going to be in power and the Romans are going to be kicked out of power. But how God does this, he says, no, no, no. Um, I'm going to give you a power. Look, look what he says in Acts chapter 1. Uh, verse 7, it says, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. He gives them power to be responsible to the mission that God had called them to. See, if you want to be free from shame, it's not enough for us to say, we accept you. We actually have to find ways to give you responsibility and call you up. So we do it. God is just that brilliant. He just doesn't think like us. Lastly, adoption, the kingdom prefers adoption over wealth. Okay, uh, right back, 2 Samuel chapter 9, the last part of verse 7. Says this, and David said, and I will restore to you. Sorry, I, I, I will restore to you. No, where am I? Oh, there we go. Uh, and you shall eat at my table always. All right, so we spoke about his kindness, then we spoke about his responsibility. So, watch this he, he's given him land because now Mephibosheth is not just. Um, Wealthy, but he's responsible for a piece of land or pieces of land, right? But then here's what he says. With all the land you're going to get, all the servants, all the people in the house of Ziba were all servants, sons and servants, all of them served Mephibosheth. In other words, they went and they worked the land and they would bring bread to Mephibosheth. But here's what David says. As much as now you're wealthy and you can eat whatever you want, you must eat at my table always. Crazy. Okay, so he's got food. It's not like It's not like he's hungry. He's got food. He's got plenty of food. But here's what David says. Eat at my table. Always going to eat at my table. Why? Why is the table so important? The table is the one place where Mephibosheth's lameness will always be covered. Hear me today. The table 
is the one place where Mephibosheth, you understand? God didn't fix him. David just adopted him. And the Bible tells us that he sits at the table as one of the king's sons. His, his shame, your shame, my shame, is covered at the table. He's, he's not bringing him to eat because he's in need. He's bringing him to eat so that he might give him a new identity. That now he would, be, he would no longer be defined by his lameness, but he would be like a son whenever he comes to the table. That's what, it, that's what he's like. He is so brilliant. He's so brilliant in the way he thinks through, navigates through what he ought to do in our lives. We think that what we need in life is wealth, but according to the kingdom, what we need is adoption into the Father's house. Yeah. Galatians put it like this. By the way, while, while you're turning over to Galatians, um, think about it in the, in the first few chapters of Acts. Do you remember when the Spirit came, people were filled, and then all of a sudden they started selling their possessions and giving money to the apostles and they gave to the whole uh, uh, members of the church. It was amazing. And the Bible says they all had everything in common, right? Yeah. Now watch this. These were Jews giving to Jews. Why, why, why was their ethnicity not enough to help them be that generous to each other? See? Your ethnicity is not enough to empower you to be radically chesed, generous to even people who look like you. You need to be filled with the Spirit. They were so filled with the Spirit of adoption that now that they knew that they were sons and daughters, they were able to give everything away. Now that they knew that they were adopted, they were able to give that which they had worked so hard to save, that which had identified, they had identified with, they gave it away because they had been adopted into a greater family. Yeah. How crazy is that? Amen. Travis, that's wild. Galatians, Galatians and I'm done. I think it's Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For, in, for you are all in Christ. This statement is not some kind of uh, a fluidity statement about being male or female. No, no, no. Uh, the, the context in the statement is this. Is that this was at a time where women hardly had rights. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying because of the Holy Spirit, because of the gospel, now the, the, the sons who had all the rights, now we are all sons. We are all sons now. We are all being placed in a position in God where we are all now, uh, we all have an inheritance. We've all been adopted legally by the Lord. 
okay? But he's not done there. Go down all the way to uh, chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Uh, verse 3. In the... Yeah, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law, to, uh, 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 born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Watch this verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So he's saying... We are now all sons. We all have this legal status of adoption, but that's not enough. I need to send you the spirit so that you might feel like a son. When you bring someone in your home, when you've adopted someone in your home, they might legally have been put under your guardianship, but they still call you Mr. Wayne. They still call you Auntie Trish. Something has to happen for them to call you daddy. And what the Bible says is that the Lord doesn't just give you a legal status of adoption. He sends the spirit so that you can look at God and you can say, you're my daddy. I trust you. He's just brilliant like that. Like he's, he, thinks, he thinks differently from us. I'm grateful for his brilliance. Isn't it interesting that the first miracle in the book of Acts was of a lame man by the gate of beautiful. I wonder if that had anything to do with this. Uh, isn't it also interesting that the word Mephibosheth directly translated means dispeller of shame. Literally. And when, in Acts chapter 3, there's a lame man by the gate of beautiful, John and Peter walk up to the lame man, and you know what the first thing is that they say to him? Look at us. That the first step to healing shame in your life is to look at the face of God. Is to lift your head up. No matter how much shame you have is to look at him and realize, oh my word, he's been looking at me all along. And his kindness has been pursuing me all along. Today, I don't know where you are, but I know me. I know today, I need to look up. I need to look up at him and go, all right, I don't deserve, but I, I'm so grateful. I feel shameful, but yet you're so kind and so good to me. I feel like I shouldn't be given responsibility, and yet you have found it fit to put me in your kingdom, and you gave me stewardship. Lord, I look to you because I know you are brilliant. You are not trying to fix me. You are trying to make all things, intending to make all things beautiful in his time. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you.
to thank you just being here. It feels like home. As I look through this room, I am so eager, Lord, for you to take even a minute part of the sermon and let it sink deep in our hearts. I am so eager that you, by your spirit, would heal us today. That no matter how far we think we are from you, that we would be so aware how close you know you are towards us. And that we would actually turn and look at you and receive kindness today. For those who are crippled with shame, I pray that you heal us. For those who are crippled with entitlement, I pray that you help us to repent. Uh, for those who feel like they don't know you, I pray that today they might taste a little bit of your brilliance and realize that knowing you is eternal life. It's everything that matters in this life. So I pray that today. Speak to us, Lord. Heal us. Call us. In Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning in. For more messages like these and other resources, you can visit our website at endurban.org. Remember to subscribe to our podcast channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Be blessed.